Chapter 6 of The Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 The position in which the trapper was thus placed, through the cowardly trick of his enemies, was one of extremest peril. It is doubtful if, in his long life, much of which has been spent amid scenes of danger and death, he had ever been in greater peril. For his enemies were on the alert and expectant of the very thing that had happened. Still expectant as they were of his descent, the suddenness of it had taken them, as it were, by surprise. For an instant elapsed before they threw themselves forward upon the trapper, who, they never doubted, was lying insensible at the foot of the stairs. That instant's hesitation on their part saved his life. The old man, by the rarest of good fortune, had put his feet upon the stair with his body at such a pose that, when it gave way under him, it did not pitch him forward, in which case he would surely have struck upon his head, but shot him like a stake driven at an oblique angle into the water, feet foremost down the stairway. It was a rapid descent in truth, and one calculated to confuse the minds of most, but habituated as he was to startling emergencies, his faculties were held well in hand, and even as he fell his mind with lightning-like action had calculated the cause of the mishap and drawn the true conclusion that his enemies themselves were in the cellar. As good luck would have it, the stout stair, an oak slab some five feet long and as many inches wide and of goodly thickness, which had given way when he put his feet upon it as he started to descend, had gone into the cellar with him. And when he landed at the bottom, it was actually in the grasp of one of his hands. The cellar was in total darkness. Not an enemy could be seen, but the trapper knew as well as if the cellar was flooded with light that his enemies were there. Without hesitating an instant, therefore, he seized a stout slab in his hands and with a yell that seemed to lift the very floor over his head, he plunged into the darkness, swinging the rude but powerful weapon that merest chance had placed in his grasp with all his force right and left, his foes crouching with their knives drawn in the center of the cellar as he plunged into the gloom, were in the very act of throwing themselves upon him. The first sweep that he made with the oaken stair hit the foremost one full in the breast and flung him back as if he had been but a bundle of straw. A scream of startling agony escaped him as he received the unexpected and painful blow. The outlaws were caught in their own toils and taken in their own net. Their very numbers were to their disadvantage, for in the darkness they could not be governed by sounds, nor did they dare to strike at any form that brushed by them with their knives lest they should stab one of their own number. Once a trapper stumbled over a barrel and fell prostrate with two of his enemies on top of him, but he threw them off as though they were but toys, and seizing the barrel by the ends, he sent it flying through the darkness at a hazard, where it struck or whom it hit was of no account to him. The uproar in the cellar was indescribable. The scurrying of feet, the thud of bodies as they struck against the wall, the scramble and plunge of forms across the floor, oaths, curses, and groans, rose out of the darkness and from every corner of the cellar, as if pandemonium itself had broken loose. Amid it all, the trapper's voice rose wrathful and loud. "'Come on, you vagabonds!' he called. "'Come on, you knaves! I'll give you a touch of the judgment. Get into a man's cellar, will you? Sneak in on him when he's gone to hide his pups from your poisoning. I'll learn you a lesson that'll gain you manners in your devilment.' It was by a common movement suggested by instinct and not by any command of their leader that the outlaws, recognizing their inability to contend against their invisible enemy, 
broke in a wild rush for the stairway and scrambled to the room overhead. But the trapper was not a man to be left behind in such circumstances. He heard their feet on the stairs, and he, too, joined them in their rush. So quick indeed was he in his action that he reached the upper room in advance of one of the outlaws, and four of his enemies, with himself in their midst, landed on the floor overhead at the same instant. Without giving them a moment to recover from their confusion, the trapper renewed the contest the instant his feet struck the floor. Indeed, the rage of the old man was enough to appall any but the most desperate of characters. His eyes flamed, and his face was the face of a lion when springing upon his prey, set, wrathful, on fire. The first man that aimed a blow at him he seized by the shoulder and spun him around as if he had been atop. But the outlaws, confident in their numbers and determined as he, fought him with desperate energy. The fifth man had clomb from the cellar, and with a yell actually landed upon his back. But before he could collect himself to make a thrust with his knife, the trapper's hand had seized him by the collar, and with a sudden wrench of supreme strength, had dragged him over his head and sent him reeling against his comrades, who were in the act of rushing at him. But, successful as the old man had been thus far in his defense, he recognized the perilous odds with which he was contending, and his courage rose fiercely to the issue. There was no time to grasp his rifle, nor did the half-breed dare to use his pistol, for the fight was at close quarters and the antagonists inextricably mingled. Once had a knife drawn the old man's blood, twice had his clothes been cut, and his shirt had been torn from his breast, leaving it bare. It was then that the trapper, perhaps from thought, perhaps from the wildness of his rage as he swept past the fireplace in full pursuit of the half-breed, whom, above all others, he longed to get within his grasp, seized a blazing brand from the fire and flung it full in the faces of his foes. Another followed, and still another, and then seizing the forest stick, flaming as it was in the middle, the old man turned upon his enemies like a lion at bay. The blazing brands which he flung at those thirsting for his blood, falling on the floor and bed and skins alike, had set the cabin on fire, and smoke already began to fill the room. At this juncture, when the confusion was at its height, and the shouts and noise of the combatants deadened all sounds, the door of the cabin was suddenly broken open, and, as the door swung inward, a man burst into the room, and a most remarkable-looking man he was. Tall? Yes, taller than the trapper by half a head. Stout? No, lean to thinness, a man with legs and arms of such enormous length that the trunk of his body seemed but a handle created by facetious nature for their accommodation. His clothes, as compared to his body, which they fractionally covered, looked like an abbreviated sentence. There was an expression of despair in his pantaloons, reaching as they did barely to his ankle joints, as if they had struggled to stretch themselves to the necessary limit, but had ignominiously failed, and were in a state of chronic disappointment at their want of success, perhaps of sublime resignation. His coat was of a swallowtail cut, short in the waist and disproportionately elongated in the tails. The bony wrists protruded beyond the sleeves, as if the hands intended some day to part company entirely with them. The collar rolled back from the spare, skinny neck, which was strongly individualized with an Adam's apple of awkward size. His head was small and thatched with a light wisp of yellowish hair. Forehead narrow but high, eyebrows of the thinnest. Eyes small, gray, and sparkling. Mouth large, lips thin, while a band of straggling whiskers, each hair standing apart from its fellows, like awkward country boys at a party before they have been introduced, 
and don't know what to do with themselves, ran their bushy heads around the face from ear to ear. A Yankee? Undoubtedly. A thoroughbred Yankee? Decidedly. Not a cross of blue blood in his veins, a pure, unadulterated Yankee. True to his type, individual, extraordinary. Into the cabin, as we have said, this astonished and astonishing individual burst. As the door flew open, burst and stood. For a moment, we say, he stood staring with open mouth and bulging eyes at the dreadful scene. The old trapper, brand in hand, facing his five enemies, only partly revealed amid the smoke. The blazing bed, the smoking skins, the overturned table, and scattered chairs. And as he took in the awful confusion of the scene, he breathed a long breath, slipped a pack from his back, and as he straightened himself to his full height again, exclaimed, Gosh! And then, fearless of danger and with a shout like a boy's when he breaks from the schoolhouse toward the playground, he launched himself into the midst of the outlaws. His manner of fighting was as extraordinary as his appearance, and the spirit which he exhibited under the circumstances would have provoked generous laughter from observers, for he went into the fight not merely with entire fearlessness of danger, but with the boisterous abandon with which a plucky but awkward youth at New England training goes into a wrestling match. In spite of his length and leanness, his agility was demonstrated by the first leap he made, for it landed him in the very midst of the outlaws. Indeed, it was due to the suddenness of his attack beyond doubt that he escaped the deadly thrusts of the knives with which the villains were armed, and whose points otherwise would have met in his heart. As it was, he was in their very midst before they were aware of it, and before they could make a motion he had swept his long arms around two of them and had started for the door. One wriggled himself out of his clutch, and falling on the floor seized hold of the long tails of his coat, endeavoring to drag him down. But the pendant extremities of the garment parted from the body, and the Yankee reached the doorway with the kicking, screaming, and swearing outlaw in his grasp, and canting him up with a motion of his knee as if he had been a bag of meal, the down-easter pitched him headlong through the doorway into the darkness, then turned. Nor did he turn an instant too soon, for the villain who had escaped his clutch had regained his feet, and vengefully mad had bounded forward and was in the very act of plunging his knife into the Yankee's back. "'Dorn you!' yelled the Yankee as he warded off the blow with one of his bony arms. "'Tour a fellow's jacket, will you? Take that!' and with the other hand he gave his antagonist a slap in the face that sent him reeling backward into the smoke. The trapper had, in the meantime, not been idle. The instant the Yankee had landed in the midst of the outlaws, the old man, dropping the blazing log he held in his hand, rushed headlong upon them. He struck the group with such violence that his three foes and himself rolled upon the floor together, and when the Yankee had knocked his assailant backward into the smoke and looked for another antagonist, Little could he see but a writhing bunch of legs and bodies. In an instant, a man was flung headlong out of the smoke as if he were a log, and fell with a heavy thud, quivering at his feet. "'Pass him out, old man!' yelled the Yankee as he grabbed the stunned outlaw by the nape of his neck and one leg and pitched him through the doorway. "'Pass him out and be darnation quick about it, for the chimney don't draw with a scent, and the damper's down. "'Jerusalem!' he shouted as another body, this time the half-breeds, was pitched out of the smoke with such violence that striking the Yankee full in the chest, it nearly knocked him over. Jerusalem! There's somebody in that smoke that's good at wrestling, I swear. Go it, you blue-skinned pumpkin! he yelled as he pitched the half-breed through the door. That's the way we do it down in Maine, 
and as he grabbed another body, as it reeled out of the smoke and passed it with a push into the darkness, he screamed, "'Go it, old feller! You're a ripper! How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour?' "'That's the dandruff!' he yelled as still another form staggered towards him, and he lifted him with a kick outward. "'How many more have you got in that hill? Rake em out! Sling em this way! Tops and all! Here's the boss tater!' and he made a rush at the huge form as it plunged toward him out of the smoke. Whoop! But the yell died out in his mouth as he sent it, for instead of lifting the man as he intended, the man lifted him, lifted him as if he had been an infant, and then as suddenly dropped him upon the floor, and the Yankee scrambling to his feet stood face to face with the trapper. For a moment the two looked at each other, and then the trapper said, "'This isn't just a time for talking, young man.' You've done me a good turn, and John Norton won't forget it. You'll find three buckets of water to the left of the fireplace. The fire's of no great account, for the blankets and skins burn slow. Open the windows, and we'll put things to rights. No, no, leave it open, continued the old man as the Yankee started to close the door. The knaves have had enough of it for one night, and are more eager to get to their camp than to try us again. If you shut the door, we'll be smoked like ham in a barrel when the punk is under it. "'Lively, boy, or the skins and blankets will look like pelt with a dozen buckshot through it.' It was some ten minutes, perhaps, before the fire was wholly extinguished and the smoke blown from the room. Then the trapper shut and barred the door and closed the windows, which were made by cutting a section out of the solid logs which composed the sides of the building, the section cut out being hung on hinges so that the windows, in case of necessity, could be stopped like the portholes of a man-of-war.' When the door and windows had thus been securely fastened, the trapper started the fire anew in the huge fireplace, and, lighting a candle, placed it on the center of the table, which had been put in its customary place, then took a survey of the premises. In different parts of the room, the Yankee had found three knives and the revolver of the half-breed. These he placed on the table, then he turned toward the trapper. The old man looked the younger one over from head to foot for at least a minute. Then he said, "'Young man?' "'What may I call you?' "'Wall, now,' answered the Yankee. "'That's a sticker. "'I've had so many names that I don't exactly know what to call myself. "'I swear if I do. "'But I reckon the old folks knew about what they was up to "'when they sought me a-going, and they called me Jim.' "'Jim who?' asked the trapper. "'Wall, now,' answered the Yankee. "'That's the fun of it, darned if it ain't. I don't believe you could hit it if you guessed all night. You see, I was born down in Maine. But there's more long names down in Maine than any other state in America. Now, you needn't believe it, but but there's lakes down there that has names longer than the lakes they belong to, by a long shot. And I'll be darned if there ain't. You can travel half a day and you can't get around the end of them. Is your name a long one? asked the trapper. Oh, that's the fun of it, answered the Yankee. I'll be darned if it ain't. There ain't a long name in Maine that belongs to a man. The lakes used them all up. I swear if they didn't. There isn't a double-bladed jackknife name in the whole state. Long? Jerusalem. I reckon tain't long. It's shorter than a rabbit's tail. Out with it, out with it, interrupted the trapper. What shall I call you? Well, now it don't make any difference what you call me, darned if it does but I'd just as soon tell you the name the old folks started me with as not. It's the only thing they ever did give me, out and out, and it ain't worth a copper. I swear if it is. My name is Jim. Jim what? 
asked the trapper again. Bean, replied the Yankee. Jim Bean. Darn me name, ain't it? I never heard the name afore, replied the trapper. But it's good enough if it serves its purpose. Never heard the name, exclaimed the Yankee. Well, I shrew, that's funny. Why, there's more beans down in Maine than you could put on a ten-acre lot if the stumps was all out. What do you do? Again interrupted the trapper. Paul, answered the Yankee. That's the fun of it. I can do anything. I'll be blowed if I can't. The beans are a cute set. There ain't one of the whole tribe that can't make money faster than thunder. We're mighty smart on a swap, I can tell you. You got anything to trade, eh? I hain't made a cent in so long that I feel like a deacon at a funeral. Darn if I don't. Come now, I'll give you twenty cents for that knife, sir as Moses. And the Yankee lifted one of the three knives from the table and rubbed the hilt, a plate of solid silver on his breeches leg, while the glitter of greed came into his little gray eyes. You'd be welcome to the knife, young man, if you want it. It belongs to the half-breed and has done devil's work enough for certain. Jerusalem! exclaimed the Yankee. You don't mean to give me the knife, do you? Darn if I ain't a fool. I thought the handle was silver. And the Yankee looked searchingly up into the old man's face. So it is, boy, so it is, answered the trapper. Solid silver it is, and the blade is a good un too. And do you give it to me? Me, Jim Bean? gasped the Yankee. Why, it's worth five dollars. Twice that, twice that responded the trapper. Twice that at least, for the blade is a good un, and ye be welcome to it, and I wish it was worth more than it is, for ye have done me a good turn, and the Lord knows ye deserve it. Well, I swear. It was all the Yankee could say. His astonishment was too great for speech. How did ye happen to come as ye did? asked the trapper. The Lord certainly sent ye to help an old man in his trouble. No, he didn't, answered the Yankee. I come on my own hook, and a darn mean time I've had of it. You see, I've got my pack full of stuff to peddle with. The beans are great peddlers, and they told me at the Saranac where I was peddling that if I could get a boat, I could paddle clear through the woods and sell the boat when I got through for twice what I paid for it. And I swallowed it whole darn if I didn't. And I've rowed that boat more than a thousand miles and never found a house. If I ever give back to them fellers, I'll sell them some watches that'll make them remember Jim Bean as long as they live, and half of eternity, darn if I don't. And that's the way I come here. The Lord sent you, boy, the Lord certainly sent you, answered the trapper. Don't know about that, persisted the Yankee. It's mighty pious to say so, and there never was a bean that wasn't a church member, darn if there was. You see, we're a sort of religious and well-to-do family. The old man is a deacon, and the way he'd pray down in the old schoolhouse at the crotch of the road after the turnips was pulled was amazing. Jerusalem, how I hear Dad just go tearing through the scripture Friday nights in that old schoolhouse when the elder was there. And he got fairly settled down to it, but it all depended on the start. I always knew when he was going to do it up brown by the way he started off. But if you got a good square start, got the first two or three verses of scripture outright, there wasn't any power under heaven that could fetch him up till he landed with a regular bean flourish on the other side of Jordan. End of chapter 6